Hey, engine professionals, machinists, and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Engine Professional Podcast. My name is Steve Fox. Alongside of me is Chuck Lynch. Chuck, how are we doing today? Doing pretty well, Steve, and yourself? Ah, oh, just doing great. Uh, it's April. Things are starting to warm up, uh, so I'm all excited, <laughs> especially <laughs> here from Chicago. Why? We're glad to see it warm up here. Well, Chuck, um, before we get started, let's uh, kind of just fill everybody in on what we're going to be talking about today. And our topic today is engine blueprinting, and we have a special guest with us, Norris Marshall from, how ironic, Blueprint Engines. Yeah, it's great. It's gonna really looking forward to having Norris on with us and uh, sharing his fast knowledge of engine building, many years of experience. So looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, it'll be very interesting for sure. Chuck, the other thing that's going on really in our industry is, uh, especially here at AERA and getting tech questions is machine shops are extremely busy right now. Very busy. Uh, you can't, they can't speak to that enough. And you see that shared in all of the information that comes from suppliers and so forth too. Yeah. Everybody is busy. Which is great for our industry. Uh, I'd rather have it that than the other way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, you know, here we are in this, the midst of spring, something else that's kind of going along with uh, the warm up and so forth that I'm seeing tracks are opening, people are planning events, people are getting outside. So uh, nice to see that. I know that some of our performance guys are talking about all the race engines that they've got lined up and ready to get out. Definitely looks promising. I'll say for later in the year when the trade shows start, you know, we're starting to get that buzz where, uh, or hear things that people are starting to look forward to that season of getting out and, and going to these trade shows and doing that face-to-face -face talking again. So uh, definitely looking forward to that. And like you said, with the racetracks opening up, uh, days warming up, uh, it, it's definitely going to be a fun summer, we hope. Yeah, I think people are tired of being indoors. <laughs> They're ready to go. That is a true statement there. <laughs> Okay, Chuck, one thing uh, that we started a couple episodes ago was our tech bulletins here. And we kind of got a very unique one that we talked about here that uh, we think will be good for our listeners. And that is the use of surface conditioning disks. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it, Chuck? All right. So TB2411, uh, it speaks to the use of surface conditioning disk and the potential hazards that they bring forth. Uh, I think under underappreciated that if you put that disc on a die grinder at 30,000 RPMs, uh, what damage that can do. So uh, not only can it cause low spots and gasket surfaces and so forth, but it can also put abrasive material somewhere that you don't want it, especially if you're maybe working on the gasket surface of a block and you, the thing is still primarily assembled. So, um, Again, for more detail into that, read further into that for our members, uh, that is TB2411. 
2411, uh, the use of surface conditioning discs. And another term that I guess I used in the shop when I was working there, we called them the the whizzy discs or whatever you want yeah. to call them. You know, I mean. <laughs> yeah, it's got a lot of nicknames. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely worth reading that bulletin because it talks about the use, um, how to use them, when to use them. Uh, and so on. And, and just taking a little bit of pressure and applying it on that gasket surface, you'll be surprised at how much you can just make a little divot in that deck uh, or cylinder head surface when you're using those. Yeah, again, you, you think about how we measure surface finish with a profilometer. You're measuring millionths of an inch. So you're doing a hand operation with a tool that doesn't have any real contro controls on it. So you have to be extremely careful if you're going to attempt it. Great information, Chuck. And again, for uh, AERA members uh, using process, or if you'd like to get a copy of that bulletin, just reach out to the tech department. It is TB2411. And we'd be happy to, uh, to get that out to you. Okay, Chuck, well, let's get started. We should probably bring our guests on. Uh, Norris Marshall here from Blueprint Engines to discuss engine blueprinting. Okay, let's talk engine blueprinting. Uh, today we have a special guest on our podcast to enlighten us on engine blueprinting, and that is Mr. Norris Marshall from Blueprint Engines. Welcome to the show, Norris. Well, Steve and Chuck, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate being here. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got started in the engine building industry? Absolutely. Uh, I'm one of those guys that, uh, uh, unfortunately for me, I'm getting older. I'm 59 years old, uh, so I'm getting to be an old hand. But uh, I grew up on a farm in rural Nebraska, but I gravitated towards working in town at repair shops as a kid instead of working on the farm. And that finally ended up in high school. I was able to work in a machine shop in the back of a parts store, boring blocks and grinding cranks and those kind of things. I just always was really interested in engines. I like cars, but I didn't really want to work on cars. I wanted to work on engines. So that was the beginning, I think, uh, being a kid working on lawnmower engines and finally working in a machine shop and learning a trade of, of engine machining and engine rebuilding. And that was the start of uh, Blueprint Engines some 40 years ago when I uh, actually quit, started my own business. Good deal. Well, we're glad to have you on the show today uh, to talk about engine blueprinting. So probably the biggest question is, what does blueprinting actually mean? I'm sure it means different things to different people, but what does blueprinting actually mean? You know, that is a great question, Steve, and I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Google. So in preparation for this <laughs> meeting, I, I Googled it. And you can find some pretty good descriptions, but generally it's accepted that blueprinting means uh, machining an engine with an adherence to a certain set of specifications. Uh, I think early on, uh, the reason the term was coined was because there was a lot of machining that wasn't done to specifications. If I can uh, harken back to those days when I was in that machine shop at 17 and 18 years old in 1979, that shop I worked at was an old shop. It had been around for a long time and back in the corner, of that old shop with some equipment they didn't use anymore. And one of those pieces of equipment was a 
piston grinder. And another piece of equipment was an in-the-block crankshaft grinder. So I remember talking to the old boys that would come back and hang around the shop about what they did with that equipment. And I suppose it was in the 40s and maybe in the 50s. Uh, if an engine lost a piston or scored a cylinder, they'd take the head off and a sun and hone and hone the cylinder oversized right there in the car. And they'd hone it until it cleaned up. And when they got done cleaning it up, they measured it, and they went and ground a piston to fit it. And the same way with the crankshaft grinding. If they scored up a, a rod pin while they'd pull the pan and take the rod off and hook a, a rod grinder on there, and sometimes even turn the wheels over to get the crank to turn, and resize that crankshaft. So if you can imagine that the beginning of the automotive engine repair industry looked like that, it would have been quite a different concept to say, hey, we're going to take this engine apart and we're going to make everything match a specification. Because originally it didn't match. They just ground it until it cleaned up or owned it until it cleaned up, made a part fit. So I would imagine in the early days, somebody said, we're not just going to repair this, we're going to blueprint it. And it probably meant they were going to bring it back to factory standards for sizes or tolerances or something like that. But certainly since that time, uh, it's taken on a lot of meanings. And you could say blueprinting is bringing it back to factory specs. But I think there's a lot of high performance engine guys that would say their engines are blueprinted, but they don't use the factory specs. They use their own specs. So adherence to a set of specifications. <clears throat> Yeah, point well taken. I think, uh, and we've had the conversation amongst ourselves, and that's kind of what triggered us to even go down the path of having this particular podcast. Um, I know there are plenty of shops that say, you know, hey, th this engine's balanced and blueprinted, and really they they don't check anything above and beyond. Maybe uh, okay, both decks are to the same height. We degreed the cam in. Uh, you know, we did a balance and we're going to call that balance and blueprinted. And that that's probably good in most cases. But as you start to see more problematic areas like uh, lobe failures, okay, are the camshaft lobe positions where they're supposed to be relative to the, the thrust position of the camshaft? Crankshafts, uh, lifter bore locations, things of that nature. I think there's a lot of opportunity the challenge is, is where do we get those specifications to even validate that the parts are correct, that they're located correctly, right? It's not easy to come up with that information. Well, that's true. And of course, you know, some things are, we're lucky and they're intuitive. For example, uh, lifter bore uh, perpendicularity to the camshaft center line. That's easy because we all know the lifter bores are supposed to be straight to the cam center line. But you're right, uh, coming up with those specs, and I think the, the industry probably has a lot of, uh, quote, blueprints or drawings floating around. I know at one point you could get that through GM or through SEMA. Uh, on our own products that we make here, of course, we have full sets of drawings for our blocks and heads because we designed them. And admittedly, they are uh, uh, inspired by an OEM design. But it's, it's a lot easier for us to validate those specs because we have a full set of drawings to check the location of the cam thrust compared to the crank thrust, et cetera. You know, you bring up lifter bores, and I think everybody in the industry knows that flat tappets have gotten to be, you know, damn near impossible to get them to live. And uh, we're fortunate in that because of the volume we do, 
we, we see a lot more uh, units, I guess. And when we used to rebuild engines with GM blocks, it was amazing uh, how many of those lifter boards would be so crooked that it would cause a, a lobe to go out. It's very common. Uh, if you didn't check them, we would at least watch for rotation back in the days when the engine first started or when we tested it. And you'd see lots of lifters that weren't rotating or weren't rotating correctly. And it always was got down to the lifter bore angle was bad. Uh, when you use an aftermarket block like our block, uh, there's a lot more attention paid to that. And back to the flat tappets, we don't see any kind of problem. So I know with flat tappets, everybody talks about the oil and they talk about the maybe the lifter material has changed or the radius has changed. There's lots of problems today that didn't seem like we used to have them. But I, I do know that the blocks are pretty crooked. If you're using an OEM block, I would not trust it with a flat tappet. Good information. <clears throat> so as, uh, you know, we speak to blueprinting, there's a accepted tolerance specification and so forth though. Um, I mean, you even have to factor in surface finishes and so forth, uh, knowing what gasket type is going to be used. Uh, you know, I know there's a lot of parameters that are more difficult to measure, you know, get into what's true flatness, waviness and things of that nature. But, you know, just making sure that you hone crankshaft housing bores or cam board that they have a surface finish and diametral tolerances. Uh, I was in a conversation last night. We were talking about how the cam housing bores are one of the unique bore diameters on an engine that they have usually their two thousands tolerance. Everything else, you know, connecting rod, it's usually eight tenths, a how crank housings at thou or so. Then I'm looking at this and I see cams are always uh plus or minus a thou. So they get two thousands total tolerance. Then they get the clinch lock bearings that they use and um just sharing the information that most cam housings uh they install the bushing and then they bore that to achieve the clearance with the camshaft at the OE level. Then we in the aftermarket have that battle to deal with because there's so much variability there. Alignment. Um, again, if you don't have anything to reference that to, that again, it can be a real challenge. And I think it's where you see some of the things where people take a camshaft and they cut a groove in it and they ring bearings and then they fight oil pressure situations. So. Um, yeah, well, you're exactly right, and uh, it, it's fun, uh, Chuck, and I'm sure you've done this too, to uh, sometimes we're able to look past what the common practices are and see reasons that nobody suspected that they became common. But, you know, the majority of the cam bearings we use are a steel a steel back with a, a pretty thick Babbitt overlay, which is pretty pretty uh, soft and, and uh, not ever really considered a, a, a heavy-duty uh, load material, but the reason that the uh, marketplace uses those is because of what you're talking about. The cam bores aren't necessarily in a line. They're not necessarily the right size, and uh, that Babbitt will yield uh, for the most part before it'll cause a problem, but it really would be a better solution to have uh, that cam tunnel be more precision, not have a 2,000 tolerance, have a uh, half thousand tolerance or seven tenths like we'd look for on the mains. Or, as uh, some of the OEMs do, to put an undersized bushing in and bore it uh, to get it to match. But yeah, cam, cam tunnels and camshaft journal sizes are certainly not the most precise part of an engine. 
And yet, you know, most time it seems to work, but uh, if you look at where the oil hole location is, that helps uh, control the oil pressure. It's usually down there at four o'clock or somewhere where there's some pressure on it, just barely in the right place to get that hydrodynamic wedge, but not ideal. And then the other thing that uh, people don't realize is almost always uh, that cam tunnel was uh, uh, three holes were bored from one end and two holes on a V8 were bored from the other end. So there can be alignment issues also. So in blueprinting, uh, you really need to take all that into account. And there'd be some areas, as you're pointing out, that normally don't get a lot of attention, like a cam tunnel, that probably deserve quite a bit more attention than what they're getting especially as spring pressure loads go up and the accuracy of everything goes up, what you're trying to do. And it, it's leaking oil all over the rotating assembly. So that would be an area that uh, can be underdone and still get by, but it will work better if it's overdone. One of the areas, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Norris, that like I've looked at some blueprints we have here in our office and they always reference a dowel pin as the Let's call it the master location to start with. Is yeah. that still the case today, or is there there other options for that? Well, I think everybody does it different, but we call that the datum. And the datum is the is the master part of where the machining begins, and everything is related to that datum. So you're going to have a horizontal plane datum and a vertical plane datum. And uh, I think we we all pretty well accept that the center line of the crankshaft is the horizontal datum. Uh, mm -hmm. It always should be, and, and as close as you can get to the center line of the crankshaft, uh, and not, you know, in some cases, you, 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 you're, you're referencing off the center line of the crankshaft, but you're finding a flat spot, like an oil pan rail, off to the side that you're claiming is the center line of the crank. Because it's, it's kind of hard to locate on a round surface when you're uh, machining, at least. So, the center line of the crank is always the horizontal datum or should be everything horizontally should be built off of that and measured off of that and machined off of that. And then uh, longitudinally front to back, uh, I like to see the thrust surface of the, that main cap or the main thrust surface in the block be the, the longitudinal datum. Although I will admit sometimes it's machined uh, off the bell housing. Now I'm not talking about necessarily OE blocks. I'm, probably talking about most aftermarket blocks, but uh, so you've got to have a horizontal and a vertical and everything has to be related to those. You know, one thing that really gives the aftermarket challenges is, um, for instance, V8 blocks that set on the pan rail in some of the aftermarket boring machines. And, and you, you know, my history, we've been friends for a long yeah. time and, and used to take blocks and create concentricity blocks, whereas we'd put them in a, a multi-axis machining center so we could locate off of the crank housing bore and then cut the pan rails, the deck surface, the china rails, the machine, all of those where I knew they were definitely parallel to the main housing bore. And then we could take those to those machines that located from the pan rail or something of that nature. And then we could do concentricity checks after we bored holes. So we, kn we knew that we started with that standard and we kept that block around so that it served only that purpose. And we could periodically put that up on that type of machinery and make sure that they were still boring a hole that was 90 degrees perpendicular to the crank housing bore. And uh, so, yeah, it, that gives some real challenges. And I think oftentimes uh, folks will set up on a pan rail and they'll cut 
both decks to the same height from the pan rail, but you may have cylinders that are leaning to the front or to the rear. And, and then sure. sometimes you chase things like, well, why do I have that odd rod bearing wear condition or a knocking yeah. sound or thrust axis problems? So a lot to think about. You know, and Chuck, if you, uh, if you look at the kind of equipment that a lot of those older blocks are machined on, they're called transfer lines. And what that really means is that the, it sat in one machine and they maybe cut the, the, the back of it and cut the pan rail, shoved it onto a next machine and set it on the pan rail with a couple chips and machined the deck of it, and then maybe flipped it over and machined the housing bore. So as they transferred that block from one machine to another, they were just multiplied the opportunities for the dimensions not, not to be right. And things that you and I would like to be able to rely on, like we'd like to say that the, the, the transmission bell housing is 90 degrees to the uh, crank bore. Not necessarily. The OE tolerance was, was pretty high. So that's why I think with blueprinting, you have to go back to what we know has to be there. Start with the crank center line. And like you were doing, you didn't try to change the crank center line. We know the crank center line and then in most cases, the pan rail are supposed to be parallel. So you went and cut the pan rail so it was parallel to the crank center line. And then you had what you knew was a good block. So I think starting with the center line and measuring everything from that for perpendicularity and parallelism, it's all you got. Because we're not going to change the crank center line. Absolutely. <clears throat> now we're talking engine blueprinting and some of our listeners may not be as engine technical as we are or okay. or some of our other listeners so when you say engine i think and i think some of our listeners do that may not be in this industry think the whole engine which would include cylinder heads and all that stuff so i would assume to very maybe explain to them better that that does apply to cylinder heads as well well, it, absolutely uh you know in cylinder heads we're we're we're, we're going to negate excessive guide and seat wear by having the guides uh, and the seats uh, centered up and, and not have the seat or the valve slopping off to the side of the seat. We need good concentricity, uh, valve stem protrusion, and what we end up with for uh, uh, installed spring height is all matters that should all be the same. You know, you can you can tell when something's wrong when there's, uh, I don't mind using valve spring shims if you need to, but if you got two under one and three under another and none under another, <laughs> there's some pretty weird things going on there where, uh, you know, the valves aren't seating the same. They're not going to flow the same. The combustion chamber volume is not going to be the same. So there's kind of, you can do built-in variation or you can try to correct that to get that so that everything is equal and even, which, which uh, is really the head's very critical because, you, that's most of your combustion chamber, and it's all of your valve control through the spring system. So the head is, is very critical uh, to get those two things right. And then we've even got uh, still, or maybe I'm uh, showing my age on the older V8s, but the, you know there was a bunch of Ford engines and Oldsmobile engines made that didn't have any adjustable valve train. Mm -hmm. And that was all dependent on the valve protrusion, but you know not really from the spring pocket, but as it related to the deck of the block. So as you machine that head and you change the, where the head's at and you change where the valve's at and then you're trying to get the push rods to have the right lifter preload, all of that matters. It oh, absolutely. 
The FE Ford, to your point there, the FE Ford was the one that really had you hamstrung. So, you know, custom made push rods, uh, your 3134 GM, very much the, the, the same type of setup. I have no adjustability. And then with the FE Fords, I'm even dealing with a rocker shaft and that whole assembly that's an, another challenge. So you really need to know those, those heights and maintain those, uh, tolerances and parameters <clears throat> yep yeah i know you're exactly right steve the head is a big part of it and uh carries some pretty important elements in it i'd say those are the two most important is combustion chamber uh, volume and spring pressure spring pressure is going to control that valve train uh don't want too much spring pressure don't want coil bind uh, don't want loose valves all, all that's critical and I only bring that up because we we were all talking about blocks, and some guys may think, "Well, I can just do all this work to the lower end, but nothing to the top end." <clears throat> but that's no. not the case. <laughs> that's a very good point because uh, we say this often. It's amazing how much people focus on cylinder bore and honing. You know, you spend tens of thousands of dollars on the the latest and greatest honing machine. Uh, we do torque plating and then in valve guides, we, we go at it pretty rudimentary, you know, a drill, drill motor, a reamer, and we punch out the guides and we don't use the best tooling to measure the diameters. We spend a bunch of tooling on measuring cylinder bores, right. And measuring right. surface finish. And then we just haphazardly go through the guides and the guides are extremely important and I contend to people often, I said, just think about this. You know, when we look at stem to guide clearance and concentricity, um, if you're going to be successful with, with valves, not beating the faces out, not burning valves, uh, then you really need to maintain valve seat runout that doesn't exceed what your stem to guide clearance is. Are you, or you will have friction. Something is going to be low because you're, you're wedging parts together, the, the seat face yep. angle. And so it's going to try to find its way home and see yep. in that taper. So if I have a thou stem to guide clearance and I have two thou valve seat runout, I've already increased friction and I'm setting myself up for guide failure or wear or combustion leakage and so forth. So I think we need to think more about what we're looking at in the top end and, and make sure we keep those specs as tight as we like to do our cylinder bores. <laughs> I think so. And then the, the other thing that's really critical and uh, we've been focused on it for years is the, the finish of the guide. You know, I think everybody accepts that the valve stem should have a really good finish, and there's lots of uh, good ways of uh, measuring the valve finish with a profilometer, and there's valve polishers out there, and there's lots of coatings that improve the finish and hardness. And then we ream the guide, and nobody knows what it looks like on the inside. And back in the day, before we had a profilometer with a small enough stylus, we would uh, uh, take the, we'd ream a, a replaceable guide and we'd knock it out and break it in half so we could get a stylus on it to see what the finish was like. And it wasn't, all, you, I mean, it was amazing. And I think it's, unfortunately, it's a little bit part of our industry. You can buy the equipment from people that sell equipment to ream guides and it still won't necessarily be what you want. You have to take the ownership to make sure that it's producing the kind of finish you want. We, we, when we started doing that, we had terribly rough finishes and rapid guide wear because 
there were just a few big globs that were holding the valve up, and as soon as they wore off, you know, and we got down to the basement here, we had a lot of clearance. I'm talking 25, 30 years ago. So that's when we started experimenting with uh, uh, rotary brooches uh, on guides, even cast iron guides. We used to run rotary brooches in them to smooth them up. And, uh, of course, uh, Sun and, and other people make some fantastic honing equipment. But, yeah, it guides and finish and size control and concentricity, all a big part of making that engine so it'll be durable and make, make power and not be leaking all over the place. Right. Leakage there, leakage past the piston ring. At the end of the day, it's an inefficient pump, right? Yep, it's the same. It's the same leakage. I think I still have boxes full of half-broken guides sitting around in my drawers. <laughs> I, I still pull out and show the new guys that we hire. It's like, here, here's where you can't do that. Yeah, one of the things that I used to do is actually put her like on a bridge port and use your rotary indexer and then clamp it and, rotor, and then mill half of the guide away so that you could get in there and, you know, unimpeded access to to that valley and measure it. So it worked great. See, that's a, that's the difference between you and me, Chuck. You're more sophisticated. I would not, <laughs> I'd knock a five-eighths guide out of a head and set it on an anvil and break it in half with a hammer. And, and I still could get in there unimpeded, but it wasn't as pretty as what you were doing. Yeah. Well, you know me, I'm quite the grill. I can do the other, I can break the stuff too. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it all matters. Uh, you know, with the CNC, there's so many of these block machines out there now that are uh, CNC machining uh, centers that can also do probing. And uh, we use uh, a CMM to do probing. Uh, those are just fantastic to be able to measure everything. Uh, you can start off with that crank center line. You can see where your decks are at. When we measure decks, you know, we started out. 40 years ago, like everybody else, we had a straight edge we bought from Goodson or somebody in a 3,000 feeler gauge. Now, when we measure deck flatness with our CMM, we measure it in like 600 places with a CMM that'll read in microns. So, but I think anybody that can do probing has that ability to validate where is everything at relative to that crank center line and relative to the thrust face of the crank. Uh, yeah, we've ran into problems where the timing chain didn't want to run straight because the, the camshaft thrust face and where the crank is weren't where they were supposed to be. And you'd look at that and you couldn't really see it, but you'd see it after you ran it for a while that that, that chain would be half wore out. And when we send it into the chain people, they said, the chain's running crooked. That's your problem. And we'd go back and put it on the CMM and sure as heck, yeah, the, the block was never right. Not only... Your engine components of your rods, your heads, your block, uh, crank, and you know all that stuff, but all the parts that go with it is part of that engine blueprinting. You know, you should measure your pistons, measure your thickness of your bearings, measure measure all that. I think should be part of what is considered a full detailed of engine blueprinting. So, if you were to do all that, Norris, and and do a complete blueprint of an engine, how much time are we talking? Like four or five hours, or Oh, no, it would take a lot more than that. And Steve, it's one of those things, though, that there, there's things that you can measure that most people can't measure or, or, or don't have the equipment to measure. For example, uh, like pistons. And Chuck's probably been through this, too. But the, the real sophisticated OE piston manufacturers can measure that ring groove 
for flatness all the way around and give you some numbers that are just astronomical, whether that ring groove has any waviness in it. And there's a lot of tolerance there where it can be not so good and still work. But we're all buying pistons from people that don't have that equipment. And I don't have that equipment, but I know a few OEMs do. And uh, we've had to measure some, some of their competitors' pistons and send us a report on how crooked that was. But if we're talking about uh, making sure that the valve seats are in the right place and the guides are right and the, and the springs are right, and then you got to say, well, Steve, if you're going to ask that question, how long does it take? I have to turn around and say, well, what's the tolerance? Whose spec are we using? You know, are we trying to get the decks within a thousandths? Are we trying to get them in within five thousandths? But um, measuring is probably the small part of it. It's the machining and the correction that is the bigger part of it because blueprinting is not measuring your block and drawing up a picture of it. Blueprinting is measuring your heads and your block and correcting them. So it really is part of a, of a good engine machining operation that you end up blueprinted, but that tolerance is gonna make a difference on how long that takes. Uh, in a CNC machine, I can machine the decks within three thousandths uh, just off of the datums. If I want them closer than that, I probe, and then I can get under a one thousandth. So that operation is going to add 30, 40 minutes to machining the decks if I want to get them under one. So it's it's a hard question to answer. How high is up? Well, and it kind of goes back to how we started the conversation of, you know, different blueprinting means different things to different people. And some guys say, well, you know, I got my engine blueprinted. Okay, well, what was actually done to it? Well, I don't know. I think what it means, Steve, is there was a line item on the invoice that said blueprinted. So true. You know, to go back to your comment about the timing chain, but there's oftentimes you don't know until it causes a problem. And then all of a sudden, oh, there is a critical to quality checkpoint. There is a parameter around that part. You mentioned pistons. Uh, you know, I didn't know that ring crews are actually tilted up based in the, in the variation of up tilt is dependent on the alloy that is used. So thermal expansion of one alloy can be different than another alloy. Well, that up tilt as the thermal, it, the head and absorbs that heat and expands, it'll actually cause those rings to tilt down so that they're actually flat. But in the static state, so the grooves can be tilted up. Um, you know, you don't know that until you see an issue because if they start out and maybe they're down a little bit and then as the head expands, they point down even more and then you have terrible blow by. Um, so, you know, you don't know what you don't know until something happens happens and you have to learn that. And uh, again, if you, if you went to every checkpoint in an engine, you know, it'd be impossible to ever build them. You have to have some faith in abilities, but to your point or earlier, you know, we're correcting in the, the remand side of your challenge. I mean, you do new engines, new castings and all that. So you have a lot more checks than, than most uh, of the performance engine rebuilders or uh, a conventional rebuilder. So I think so. It, it is an advantage, but it's also a different set of problems because I've done both. We've worked with lots of used cores over the years and now working with new 
uh, we still have to check and make sure the new things, I mean, we don't, we don't make our own cranks. We buy cranks. Uh, uh, so we have to check those, but it, you know, I think fundamentally what we're trying to get done with blueprinting is if we think about what the engine's doing, we've got in a V8 engine, we've got eight cylinders. They're supposed to be firing evenly. We've got a camshaft that's supposed to be opening the valves aligned with those eight cylinders and when that's happening. If the lifters are in the wrong place, then the valves are opening in the wrong place, aren't they? Mm -hmm. If the crankshaft isn't 90 degrees and 90 degrees and 90 degrees, then the pistons aren't up at the top dead center 90 degrees apart. So now when we're firing it with a crank trigger or a distributor or, or an ECM and coils, they're firing in the wrong place. So if you look at all the things that can go wrong, where uh, number one's at top dead center where it's supposed to be, but number three and five are off by four degrees because the crank screwed up. Or uh, number one's correct in the cam and the valves. We got that timed up good, but if we go put the degree wheel on another cylinder, all of a sudden it's screwed up because the lifters are tilted wrong around the camshaft. So there's lots of things can go wrong where we really negate trying to get all eight of these cylinders to work as well as they could. So I think in the beginning, that's probably what blueprinting was about. It's like, well, let's get all eight cylinders working as hard as they can. And when you go back to the story I told you about the guys grinding crankshafts in the block, they didn't correct the stroke. They were just grinding on the wear. So if the top of the journal was wore down, they probably shortened the stroke by 80,000 and didn't even know it. So somebody came along and said, we can do better than that. We're going to get that stroke so it's always the same. And somebody else said, we're going to index it. We're going to make sure those crank throws are 90 degrees apart. So all that just to get them. So you don't just have number one cylinder making the power. You got all eight of them making some power. Okay, Chuck, have you got any other questions for Norris on uh, engine blueprinting? I don't. Uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground today. Uh, a lot of good content. And I think this will be very helpful to our, our membership and folks listening. Yeah, Norris, we do appreciate you taking your time out of your day to be on our podcast. I think the information that you've spoke of today and provided to our listeners will help give them a better understanding of what engine blueprinting is. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to speak to your members. Uh, and I also want to tell you, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Uh, I've listened to your podcast. The information you provide is super helpful. Uh, the industry needs constant education, and you're providing it. So thank you for doing that. Well, again, no thank you for being on, and uh, we'll probably have you on again. So don't don't go too far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll I'll keep googling the answers before. You there go. you go. <laughs> and Norris, again, you know, thank you for your uh, longtime support, longtime friendship, and uh, really glad to have you a part of our industry. All right, guys, thanks a lot. Look forward to the next time. Chuck, that was a great discussion with Norris we just had on engine blueprinting. Very informative. I think something that our listeners will be uh, can take back to their shops. Absolutely. You know, it's so important that we understand uh, specs and tolerances. Uh, Norris brings a unique viewpoint to this and that uh, he used to be in the engine rebuild side of it. And then over time, he's gone into new engine manufacturing. So 
uh, blueprints and knowing those specs and tolerances uh, is hypercritical for him uh, in that side of it. So yeah, we could have talked all all day about all the opportunities that he sees and things that he could share with us. It's terrific. Yeah, and I definitely, as we were having that conversation with Norris, I was thinking like, man, we could really have Norris back on and maybe talk about engine development, you know, from from nothing to something. Right, yeah. A sheet of paper to, you know, making power. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely look forward to that. We will definitely have Norris back on to discuss something like that in the future. And I think engine development from Norris and a discussion on that will just just be great. If you'd like to join our social media accounts, you can search A-E-R-A-E-P and subscribe or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we do a lot of information there. We promote our podcast. We promote uh, any webinars that we're having, regional conferences, anything I missed there, Chuck? I don't believe so. Uh, again, it's uh, all the different outreach methods that we have. Um, you know, try to, to join and take a look at all of them. Um, we may have something, uh, has a little different look, maybe more enticing to you elsewhere, but yeah, take a look. Yep. Definitely do that. And you can also find the engine professional podcast on your favorite podcast hosting sites or on our website at podcast.engineprofessional.com. Well, Chuck, that brings us to our, our next episode. And what shall we talk about? So next up, I think, uh, you know, we're talking about the critical specs and making sure that we get the engine built right, machined right, assembled right. Uh, so now the installation and break-in part of it. So we're going to, uh, to delve into the subject of engine break-in. Pretty important, huh? I would say, I would say, <laughs> I think we've all had some bloody noses on that process in the past several years with the, you know, all the cams and lifter failures and oil changes. So yeah, it's a, it's a topic that we can definitely, uh, probably share some good real life situations and the why behind that. Absolutely. So again, subscribe to our podcast so you'll know when we have that episode comes out on engine break-in. Uh, looking forward to discussing that topic with Chuck. And if you have any suggestions or questions about our podcast or engine building, feel free to email Chuck or myself at eppodcast at aera.org. Well, Chuck, this brings us to an end to another episode. Um, I, I really enjoy doing these with you. I think they're a lot of fun. I'm glad we started doing them. It just gets that information out to all these engine builders, and I think it's uh, I think it's a great thing. I do as well. It's a media that you know, you can always, you can listen to it in the shop. You can listen to it on the road. Uh, if you're a, a nutcase like me, that's, that's always your media. Now I don't listen to much music anymore. So <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad we're doing this and, and I look at it a lot of others as well. So it's a good way to share a message. It's terrific. I'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, who joined our podcast today. And thanks for listening to our podcast and subscribing so, Chuck, till next time. Till next time. Mm -hmm.